It's lovely to be here again tonight. Thank you all for coming out on a Wednesday evening. God bless you. Um, I got the plane in at six o'clock this morning and somebody said to me just about 15, 20 minutes ago, how are you? And I said, cold. And they said, oh, you're back in Northern Ireland. You just have to remember that that's what you're always going to feel like when you're here. I don't think that's true, but um, it's lovely to be with you. Could you um, turn to a couple of places in your Bible that we're going to um, use this evening? The first is 1 Kings chapter 8. Being back in Northern Ireland, I can say that properly now, can't I? 1 Kings chapter 8. (laughs) And the second is 2 Chronicles chapter 7. They're almost identical, actually. I'm sure those of you that um, are familiar with those passages will know that. When I was talking to the church session about what I wanted to speak about in these Bible studies, it didn't take me long to work out that last week I wanted to uh, think about the fact that the gospel still works. And tonight, I've given the title to what I want to say of Ulster Still Needs Jesus. Why that title? Why did I end up with that? Well, if you Google Ulster Needs Jesus, if you've got your phones, you can do it now if you want, then the first thing that comes up in the results is a link to the New Horizon event of August 2014 and a link to a talk given there on the 13th of August by me. But it wasn't entitled Ulster Needs Jesus. It was built on Colossians 1, the idea that Christ is our hope and that he is our hope individually. He's the hope of us corporately, he's the hope of the church, and he is the hope of the world. Whoever wrote the little summary of that um, evening uh, wrote this. I only found it as I was preparing for you. Uh, Malcolm had a strong challenge for the church of his homeland as he concluded his message, does Ulster see Jesus in the church? Or have we wrapped the cross in the Bible in a union jack and failed to get beyond a patriotism that masks God and makes him look like us. That's not the reason for my title, but could be part of what you will take away tonight. Then if you were in the Elam Bible Week this summer, on the 21st of July, I was speaking there on a couple of evenings. On my last night there, I preached on Acts chapter 17, particularly from verse 6, which describes the way in which the early church was growing and developing. And it says this, these people who have been turning the world upside down have also come to us. The title of the message that evening was The Power of a Redeemed Future as a Church. And I encouraged those that were present to remember that we needed to be Christ-centered, that we needed to have a sense of urgency to be empowered by the Spirit, to be reaching out to every part of our community and to be bringing transformation as we engage in the mission of God. I guess that could also be a reason for choosing a title, Ulster Still Needs Jesus, but it isn't. Let me tell you why I've chosen that title. It comes from my early days as a Christian, and it's rooted in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. I was converted in Whitewell, just up the road, in the old building, And when I was converted in the balcony that went round the building, um, it had on it in blue, on a blue background in gold, if my people 
who are called by my name will pray and humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways. Actually, what it had was, if my people will pray, dot, 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 then I will heal their land. And around about that time, there was a campaign that was run by Whitewell, which was simply entitled, Ulster Needs Jesus. The phrase was emblazoned on posters. It was on banners. It was on um, big billboards. It was everywhere that you went. I had only just uh, become a Christian or I became a Christian around about that time. I'm not sure how the timings work with the campaign. I can't remember the exact dates of it, but I can remember it. And that phrase has lived with me for 31 years. Lived in my head and in my heart. Somewhere in the back of my mind every day has been this recurring prayer. Lord Ulster needs Jesus. Would you please reveal your son to Northern Ireland, to Ulster? And I know they're not the same thing. Don't worry. That's where the title comes from. This deep-seated conviction, belief in my heart that this province, if it is to see change of any description in any way, in any shape, and in any form, needs to see two things. First of all, it needs to see a revival in the church. And secondly, it needs to see an awakening in the lives of men and women who at this point know nothing about who Jesus Christ is. Ulster doesn't need a sanctimonious church. It doesn't need a self-centered church. It doesn't need a religious body. It doesn't need a body that's going to look down its theological glasses at people. It needs a community ablaze with the glory and the love of God. And if that's what it sees, then God will do something powerful and transformative. A lot has changed in the 31 years since that campaign in my life and in this province and in your lives just around about that time, just before I was converted, the Anglo-Irish Agreement was signed in November 1985. The Good Friday Agreement was signed in April 1998. The St. Andrews Agreement was signed in October 2006. Interestingly enough for me, and I'll come back to this later on, in September 2014, Ian Paisley died. And in the same month, Jim McConnell stepped down from leading Whitewell Lots of men who had an anointing to reach into this province stopped their ministries for one reason or another. Lots of political change, lots of social change, lots of cultural change, lots of unsettling in working class Protestant and Catholic communities. But one thing remains unchanged. Ulster still needs Jesus. And in the next five years, the eyes of the world are going to be on this province. Everybody in Europe is going to be looking at what happens here. Whether Northern Ireland realizes it or not, it's going to become the eye of the storm for political debate and cultural conversations for the next decade that will shape not just this province, but will shape the United Kingdom, will shape the Republic of Ireland, and will shape Europe the Brexit vote and all that goes with it is going to have huge implications on how the world looks at what goes on in these islands. The drastic demise of Christianity in Europe is something that God has been speaking to me about for a number of years. He gave me a, 
what I believe to be a, a prophetic picture of the church being pushed out of Europe, pushed out of the continent of Europe, pushed out of the United Kingdom, pushed to the very western extremities of the continent of Europe, which is Ireland, north and south. And in the dream that I have had recurrently, God puts his hand down on the western border of both Northern Ireland and the Republic, and he says, thus far and no further. And he starts to push back. And he pushes back a sense of his purpose and a glory in his church and a commitment to his word. And he pushes it across the island of Ireland and across the British Isles and back down into continental Europe. Now, you might think that that's fanciful. I believe that God has said something to me about what's going to happen in these islands. I believe with all of my heart that in uh, both Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, we're going to see an awakening and a revival. I'm absolutely convinced that God is going to raise his people again, that he's stirring something in the hearts of Christians and he wants to do it powerfully and you get to be the generation to take part in that or not. You get to be one church amongst many churches that gets to make a choice about what you're going to do about that. Ulster still needs Jesus. What's that got to do with 1 Kings chapter 8 and 2 Kings chapter 7? Well, I think that when you read these chapters, they're both about the same thing. Let me paint the context for you. They're both about Solomon's prayer as he dedicates the temple after it has been built for the glory of God. The prayers are powerful. We know if you want to go to 1 Kings chapter 6, first of all, and follow me as we look through this, we know when this was. You know that um, the United Kingdom of Israel, Judah and the, the northern and the southern kingdoms of Judah and Israel only had three kings before they divided. And then they argued over a building tax for the temple. And the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom ended up with a whole different range of kings. Most of them weren't great. That's a potted history of Old Testament kingship. But in 1 Kings chapter 6, we read this. In the 480th year, after the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. Now go to the end of that chapter, to verse, 20, to verse 38. In the 11th year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts and according to all its specifications. He was seven years in building it. In other words, we can date this prayer very precisely. It was 480 years after Israel came out of Egypt when Solomon started building the temple and that he started building it in the fourth year of his reign and it took seven years for him to build it which means that he began to build the temple in 966 BC, for those of you that are taking notes. And because we know from the end of 1 Kings chapter 6 that he took seven years to build it, we know that he finished building it in around 959 BC. So we can date this prayer pretty accurately to 959 or 958 BC in Jerusalem where the temple is being built. It's not an idea, it's not a story, it's not a myth, this is when it happened. 
And we know who prayed the prayer of dedication of the temple and prayed that God would move. Now, the prayer itself is contained in 1 Kings chapter 8 from verse 22 all the way down to verse 54. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 from verse chapter 6 from verse 12 all the way down to the end of the chapter in verse 42. I'm going to comment on the prayer in a moment. But what I want to read to you is God's response to it so that you understand where I'm coming from. For that, you need to read from verse 12 of 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Has everybody got it? Yes? Well, three of you have got it. Have you all got 2 Chronicles chapter 7? Great. Still hear pages turning. Everybody got it now? I'm not being pedantic. I just like people to read their Bibles with me. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night, this is after his prayer, and said to him, I have heard your prayer and I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence amongst my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish your royal throne as I made covenant with your father David, saying you shall never lack a successor to rule over Israel. But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you, and you go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from the land that I have given you. And this house which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And I will make it a proverb and a byword amongst all peoples. And regarding this house, now exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and they adopted other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this calamity upon them. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. That prayer and God's response to it is an incredibly important part of Old Testament history. But it's also an incredibly important story for us to remember you see, the thing about Solomon was this, as by way of context. He started out so well. He was the anointed son of David. 
He is the son of Bathsheba and David, actually, for those of you that are interested in the fuller story. Bathsheba and David had an affair, had, to, uh, had um, sex outside of marriage, and the first child that uh, Bathsheba bore to David died. But then they conceived again, and Solomon was their son. Born out of this murky, questionable, difficult past, and yet anointed by God to be a great king. And he built the temple that David had longed to build. You can read some of the longing of that in Chronicles. But he was a selfish king. He was not a perfect king by any stretch of the imagination. For a minute, go back to 1 Kings chapter 6. Because there's something really interesting that happens between chapter 6 and chapter 7. I'll read the end of chapter 6 again. In the 11th year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts and according to all its specifications. He was seven years in building it. Wow! Now listen to 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 1. Solomon was building his own house 13 years. He spent twice as much time and probably four times as much money on his own house as he did on the temple. So even in this prayer of dedication, even in this moment when this powerful king is saying to God, look at us and touch us and anoint us and protect us and help us, even then, in that very moment, he had been selfish about what he was doing. He was not a perfect man by any stretch of the imagination. Here are a few of his errors. He forced labor for the building of the temple, which almost broke Israel. He gave some of the land of Israel to the king of Tyre as payment for a debt. He trusted in his armies and his chariots and his wealth and his power and his political prowess rather than God. He made political alliances through marriage. He killed his half-brother, Adonijah. He disobeyed David and he didn't do wholeheartedly what God had asked. He worshipped idols and pagan gods. He married foreign wives and brought their gods to Israel. He built altars for them all across Israel. He placed heavy taxes on the people and he overspent profusely. And yet God used him. God anointed him in the prayer for this temple, this powerful moment in Old Testament history and in the history of Israel. This one man saw something that other people didn't see. He saw the need for God to anoint the temple. It wasn't any good having this fantastic building. It was what was going to happen in it and through it that really mattered. No man or woman is ever the answer to a nation's problems before God. No one person is the man or the woman. I'll come to that later on. But they can help. God can raise up voices. There's a, a powerful verse in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 11, about Jehoshaphat's reign. He reigned from 870 to 849 BC. And he's in war with the Moabites. Listen to this, 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 11. Jehoshaphat's under pressure and he doesn't know what to do. And here's what he says. Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Where's that prophetic voice in Ireland? Where's the voice in the church calling the people of God 
to the things that Solomon calls them to in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Where's the, the movement? Maybe it's here. I'm not asking rhetorically because I don't think it's there. I may not know. But where is the voice that God is raising up? You see, when you look back at the history of Elam, for example, the movement that this church is part of, and it's, it was founded in Ireland in 1915 in a place called Monaghan. The first building they ever bought was a laundry in Belfast. But there was in that movement in the early days this deep sense of urgency to reach unchurched people, to reach beyond the boundary of the church and to reach with the glorious and simple power of the gospel, which is why I talked about it last week, into the whole of Ireland. There was no Northern Ireland and Republic of Ireland in 1915. There was just Ireland. And there was this deep yearning, this deep longing to reach across this island and to see many people brought to faith in Jesus Christ. Where is that now? Where is it in Ulster? And by Ulster, I mean Ulster. In the nine, prov- the nine counties that make up this province. Where are the Solomons? Where are the Elijahs? Where are the Elishas? Where are the, the men and women that have a passion in their belly, a fire in their heart, a longing to see not just a street changed or a little bit of this province changed, but all of it impacted by the gospel? Maybe you are that person. Maybe you're that in business. Maybe you're that in education. Maybe you're that in commerce. Maybe this church is part of that. Or maybe God is saying to his whole church across the province of Ulster, rise up. Discover again what it means to turn to me with an absolute desperation and hunger and yearning. Because I am the only one that can turn this province around. The politicians have been trying not for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or 40 years. They've been trying for 500 years and have failed consistently because they don't have the answer. There's only one message that can bring people that are suspicious of one another together and that's to give them new life from the inside out. There's only one hope for Ulster and for the other three provinces of the island of Ireland. And it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the glorious power of God to transform people that we looked at last week. When you read this prayer of Solomon, and I want to focus in on the two Chronicles seven, uh, at six and seven one for a moment, you discover something really moving, really challenging. So go to 2 Chronicles chapter 6. We're going to dip into this. Verse 12, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly of Israel. And he spread out his hands. Remember, this is the king. I'm not trying to equate Israel with Northern Ireland, by the way. I'm not a British Israelite. For those of you that are, I'm not one. But this is the political leader of Israel, as well as the anointed king. When was the last time a political leader in memory stood before the people and prayed? For all of the difficulties and challenges and the really unfair critique, and I can say this because I live in England, 
The, the vitriol with which they speak about Northern Ireland MPs is ridiculous. But for all of their caricaturing of the MPs from this province, they're the only MPs I ever hear being clear about their faith in Jesus Christ. Whatever you think of their political views, and I don't want to go into that, they're the ones that I have heard being very clear that they are followers of Jesus. They're not ashamed of him. They're not ashamed of who he is and what he's done. Every year I go to something called the National Prayer Breakfast. I've spoken at it a couple of times and there are hundreds and hundreds of lords and ladies and MPs and millionaires and billionaires and they've all got money. It's amazing to be in it. You know, it's, it's a real honor to be asked. Very rarely do you hear Jesus mentioned. God you can talk about. Jesus, not so much. Because he's too unique, he's too demanding, he's too challenging, he's too upsetting, he's too confronting for a culture like the culture of the United Kingdom and of Europe. But when you read Solomon's prayer, you're deeply moved. In verse 13, we read that he knelt before the people on his knees in the presence of the whole assembly of Israel. He shows humility. In verse 14, we read these words. He said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and steadfast love with your servants who walk before you with all their heart. He acknowledges the priority and the uniqueness and the greatness of Almighty God. In verses 14 and 15, he acknowledges God's faithfulness to the people of Israel and his covenant keeping with them. Listen to verse 16 and 17 for a moment. Therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep your servant, my father David, that which you promised him, saying, there shall never fail you a successor before me to sit on the throne of Israel. If only your children keep to their way to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Listen to this verse. Therefore, O Lord God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you promised to your servant David. His prayer is rooted in the revealed will of God. Let your word be confirmed. In verses 18 to 21, he cries for mercy. And in verse 21 itself, you hear this, and hear the plea of your servant and of your people Israel. When they pray toward this place, may you hear from heaven your dwelling place. Hear and forgive. Does that sound like anything to you? When you hear the prayer offered in this place, hear from heaven, hear and forgive. Now let 2 Chronicles 7:14 ring in your ears again. If my people pray, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. God is directly answering the prayer that Solomon prays here. Hear from heaven and forgive. And God says, well, here are the terms of that, Solomon. If that's what you want, then here's what you need to do. It's as clear as the nose on your face. Has there ever been people in this island that have had that boldness? I think there have. I can't go all the way back through revival history, but I'm fascinated. Anybody else like revival history? Just me? One person in the room. Oh, two. It is fascinating. When you read of the revivals and the awakenings that have taken place on this bit of land called the island of Ireland, and in Northern Ireland in particular, it is 
absolutely fascinating. 1859, the Irish Revival in Ormo Park, 30,000 people turning up a night to pray. Outside, asking God to have mercy upon um, Ireland and to touch it with his power. Balamina, Kells, Ahochel. Try getting an English person to say that. If they think we can't say it, they definitely can't say Ahochel. <laughs> People walking miles and miles and miles to hear the gospel. And the people at the heart of it, who were they? Well-known folk, not at all. Famous people, not at all. Rich, not at all. Wealthy, not at all. Politicians, not at all. Mainly old women that prayed. In the, um, in the, in the first half of this century, uh, a leader called Duncan Campbell stood up in Belfast to preach in the Methodist church on Donegal Square West, I think it is. I can't remember. The one that is now a bank or was a bank when I lived here. And he was about to start. There'd been two years in the preparation. Two years in the preparation. He stands up on the first night and he comes to the platform and he stops and he turns around and he says to the elders that were sitting behind him, brothers, I have to go. And they said, go where? And he said, I've got to go to the Outer Hebrides. They said, what do you mean? He said, God has told me just now I have to go to the Outer Hebrides to preach. What would the session say? Two and a half years in the planning. Posters out, bills out, everything sorted out. And the preacher arrives. And you're all sitting with anticipation. Your Bible's open, your notebook's open, your pen in your hand. You've had a great time of worship. You've been praying about it for months. And the preacher gets up and says, good evening. Oh, I have to go, I'm sorry. How would you respond to that? Those elders in that church said, go. If that's what you believe God has asked you to do, Go. So he makes his way to the Outer Hebrides. He gets off a boat onto the pier. He walks up the pier or the, the jetty, sees a house with a light on in it. This is a true story. He walks in and it's lit by an um, oil lamp. And there are two old women with their backs to him on their knees praying. They didn't even turn round. They heard the door opening and one of them said, you're the man God said that he would send. So he preached first night. Not very much happened. Preached again. People were converted. Preached again. More people were converted. I have a tape of this. It's called the Hebridean Revival. I have a tape of a prayer meeting. They didn't use music. They sat to sing and they stood to pray because they wanted to be different from the Church of Scotland that did it the other way around. And there's this old woman in the prayer meeting and she starts to pray in Gaelic in a very shrill voice. And then in the tape, and the audio cassette, that's how old it is, you hear this noise. And it gets louder and louder and louder until you can't hear the woman praying. You can just hear people shrieking. It was the power of God shaking the church where the prayer meeting was taking place. When did that last happen in your prayer meeting? When did that last happen in any prayer meeting? Now here's the thing. Can it happen? I really believe it can. The Hebridean revival had such an effect that police stations closed. Whole generations were transformed by the power of the gospel. 
Can God do that again in Ireland? Yes, he can. I would say even more than that, not only he can, he wants to. How many of you have heard of W.P. Nicholson? Born in 1876 in Bangor, buried in Bangor actually. Died in 1959 in October. He was called the tornado in the pulpit. In the 1920s, God used him powerfully. The later end of his ministry was less strongly used, but still used by God. So much so that they built a, a warehouse in Harland and Wolfe, which they named the Nicholson Shed. And it was a shed that they built so that the people that were, who had been converted could bring back the stuff that they had stolen and put it back in it. And it's true. W.P. Nicholson had a powerful anointing on him. I want to read you something. As I've been preparing for tonight, about a month ago, I discovered this article in the Evangelical Times. It was printed in December 1996. You'll get it online. The title of it is The Revival That Healed the Nation's Wounds. And here's how it opens. The serious situation in Ulster today is comparable with the tragic days of the 1920s. Politicians are at their wit's end and God's people are praying for another revival. It goes on to tell the story of this man, Nicholson, and his preaching. Plain, down to earth, really ordinary, not complicated. But the article says this, the secret of his usefulness under God lay in his total commitment to the infallible word of God. He never presented an easy believism or stooped to cheap decision-making. When he preached on the Shankill Road, there were 2,000 people converted. When he preached in Newington Presbyterian Church, there were 1,100 people converted. When he preached in St. Enoch's, there were 15 Presbyterian Church, there were 1,500 people converted. During that few years in the 1920s, the Christian endeavor went from 5,000 in membership to 10,500 in membership. 50% of Presbyterian churches doubled in membership in five years. There was a five-fold increase in ministry candidates. One article puts it this way. What Charles Wesley did in England to avert a civil war W.P. Nicholson did in Northern Ireland under God to stop bloodshed after partition in 1921. People's lives were literally saved as a result of this man's ministry. Mayhem and violence was held back on the streets of Belfast because of his ministry. Property was restored to its rightful owner. Has God used people in Northern Ireland in the past in the way I believe that he wants to use people again? Absolutely. And this is where I come back to something and I don't want to overstate it because one of these men is a dear friend of mine and the other I knew personally. I believe God's hand was on Ian Paisley. That he was a profoundly important preacher of the gospel. Whatever you think of his politics, I'm not talking about his politics, but God used him to reach lost people. And for a moment, there was the possibility of another outbreak of something powerful in this province again. 
He died in September 2014. In the same year, Jim McConnell stepped down from leading Whitewell. I believe God's hand was on that man too. Whether you agree with his theology, whether you agree with everything about him or not, whether you agree with some of the things that he said in the latter part of his ministry, I'm not asking you to make a comment on that. I'm saying this to you. Thousands of people were ushered into the kingdom through these two men's ministries. Thousands of people converted. Thousands of people reached. I don't think it's a coincidence that in the same month, Ian Paisley died and Jim McConnell stepped out of the leadership of the church that he had birthed. But my deep longing and prayer is that God would do something now in our generation before we die that we might see a move of the Holy Spirit across the province of Ulster and across the island of Ireland and into Europe that will transform thousands of people and usher thousands of people into the kingdom. And I believe not only that he can do it, I'm convinced that he wants to do it, that it's his longing to do it. But I don't think he wants to do it through one man or one woman. I think he wants to raise up a generation of people with a passion in their hearts. And I think you're part of that generation. Whatever age you are, I'm not talking about those that are under 40 or those that are under 30 or those that are under 20. I'm talking about you living, breathing, sitting in front of me, listening to me. I think God wants to do this. I think he has a better plan for this island than you or I can imagine or think. When you go back to Solomon's prayer in 2 Chronicles 7, you see something really interesting. Three times in chapter 6, in verse 22 and verse 28, I beg your pardon, four times in verse 34 and verse 36, Solomon uses the word if. If your people sin, if your people walk away from you, if disaster hits us, if this happens, please still hear our cry. And three times in verse 24, 26, and 32, he uses the word when. When we turn away from you, when we disappoint you, when we are selfish, still here. It's as if Solomon knows that the people that he's leading are going to let God down again and again. It has a blind spot to his own leadership, perhaps. It's interesting that often we can do that. We're very quick to spot everybody else's faults and really slow to spot our own, aren't we? But he cries out to God and he says, hear us and forgive us. And that's the context into which God gives the answer in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, seek my face and turn from heaven and will forgive and, uh, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. If and when, used again, but this time by God, back to his people. What an amazing thing. If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears will be attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. It's so simple. 
It's not complicated. It doesn't take 25 years of studying revival history to understand this. If we are willing to pray, if we are willing to humble ourselves and to seek God and to turn from our wicked ways, then he is willing to heal our land. If we are willing to pray and turn to him, then he is willing to heal our land. Why could, how could we not respond to that? How could that not drive us to our knees? It's simple and it's clear. God calls us to repentance. Some hyper grace movements in the church in America and in Europe, some of them now in Northern Ireland, are telling you that repentance isn't required. It's not important. You never need to repent. I've never heard such nonsense in all my life. Repentance is a daily choice of walking in God's way, humbling ourselves under him, living according to his word. Some Pentecostal churches in Northern Ireland and in the United Kingdom feel more like freak shows than churches. Some of the things that go on in them, the way the gift of tongues is used, the way the miraculous is used, it feels like you've walked into a Darren Brown event rather than being present in a church where things are done decently and order and the Holy Spirit is allowed to do what he wants. God has given us clear instructions and clear guidance and clear help and said, if you live like this, if you just live according to my principles and according to the way I want, I will do something in you. To turn to him in repentance must be the most important moment and thing that we can do as Christians. To be reliant upon him and not our cleverness or our money or our buildings or our plans or our preaching or our great schemes, but just reliant on the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's word. And to be resolutely determined to honor him above everything else. If we do those things, God will hear from heaven and he will heal our land. Only God can do that. But only we can pray. He's not going to pray for us. There are certain things God can't do for you. He can't believe for you. You have to believe for yourself. He can't repent for you. You have to repent for yourself. And he can't pray for you. He'll pray with you and he'll inspire your praying. But you have to pray. I have to pray. And by the way, he can't forgive for you either. You've got to forgive for yourself. So here's the thing. How do you link Solomon to today? The really sad story about the Old Testament history is this. It lasted a generation. The very thing God said would happen, happened. Solomon turned his back on God. The people of Israel turned their back on God. So in 722 BC, an empire called the Assyrian Empire swept down on the 10 tribes of Israel and took them into captivity and they never came out again. Then 118 years later, 116 years later, the Babylonian Empire swept down on Benjamin and Judah, the two tribes of the southern kingdom. Jeremiah was the prophet at the time. 
and swept them into exile over three different events. The first one in 606, the second one in 595, and the third one in about 587. And the temple ended up a ruin. There were wild animals living in it. The rocks were falling out of it. The grass was growing up in between it. It was destroyed, utterly destroyed. The very thing God said, if you don't follow me, this is what's going to happen, happened. I wonder how many of us as Christians think, God will never let that happen to the church in Ulster. He'll never let it happen to the Donald Elam. He'll never let it happen to the Presbyterians or the Church of Ireland or whoever it might be. He might. It depends on what we say to him. It depends on what we do to him. And no one can make this decision but you and me. That's a salutary challenge for us. Don't mistake the sovereignty of God for meaning you can do what you like. That's never what the sovereignty of God has meant. Here's what I'm convinced of. God's purposes for Israel haven't finished. But generation after generation in Israel missed it and missed it and missed it. A whole generation left the promised, left um, Egypt and only two of them went into the promised land. God's sovereign purposes weren't thwarted one bit, but a generation of people missed the promised land. Those that were swept into Assyria never came out again. Of those that went into the southern kingdom captivity in Babylon and then under Persia, a man called Cyrus, 10% went back to rebuild the temple in 520 BC. 90% chose to stay in captivity. Do you know why? Because it was easier to stay in captivity than it was to press into new territory. It's easier to do church comfortably than it is to do church God's way. It's easier to have great meetings and enjoy our gatherings and make sure we like the preaching and we like the singing and we like the services than it is to say, I will be part of a body of people that will press into God until we see, until we see revival in Ulster. That might upset everyone. Are you willing to do that? Am I willing to do that? Am I willing to reorder my life around the conviction that God wants to move in this province? Are you? You see, when you read the New Testament compared to the Old Testament, here's the, the remarkable thing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says something that is utterly mind-blowing. It sounds like the same thing, but it's slightly different. He says in both of those verses, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit now. One of them is addressed to individuals and one of them is addressed to a local church. The temple in Jerusalem is not the center of our religious life. It's not where we pray to. This is a Pentecostal church. And that means... We believe that the Holy Spirit resides within the life of believers. You, me. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I wish you all could prophesy. Where is the prophet in Israel? Do you remember I said that 25 minutes ago? Where is the prophet 
in Northern Ireland, where is the prophet in Ulster? It's not Malcolm Duncan. It's not him over there or her over there. We are now the prophetic voice. All of us. Every one of us filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered by God, given an anointing to see this province changed. So when you go to work as a nurse in the Ulster Hospital, you're not just going as yourself, you're going as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. You carry him with you. If you're a funeral director, God goes to every funeral you take. If you're a teacher ready to kill the kids, he goes with you. We used to sing a, school, a, a song in Abbott's Cross Primary School. It was like this. Our wee school is a good wee school. It's made of sticks and plaster. The only thing that's wrong with it is the baldy-headed master. He goes to the pub on a Saturday night and he goes to church on Sunday and he prays that God will give him strength to beat the kids on Monday. <laughs> if you're a teacher, it's a terrible song, isn't it? You carry God with you. If you run a garden center, you carry God with you. If you run meat, things. You carry God with you. Whatever it is, wherever you are, you are now the prophetic voice. I mean, we gather together on Sundays or on Thursdays or Wednesdays or whatever day it is. We're gathering together to remind each other, God is with us. God's purposes for this island have not changed and his purposes for the world have not changed. I don't believe for one millisecond that he loves South America more than he loves Northern Ireland. The places where revival is breaking. I don't think he loves them one bit more than he loves here. I think he loves this province as much as he loves anywhere else. But we are called to reach our Jerusalem, our Judea, our Samaria, and the uttermost ends of the earth with this good news that we talked about last week. Let me be bold. Where is the Jerusalem for Dundonald Elam? I want to suggest to you that it's the whole Castle Ray conurbation. Tens and tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people. And that God has placed you in the center of it for his glory. And the way we do church will not reach those people. Got to think about planting. Got to think about taking bold steps. Got to think about training and releasing evangelists. Got to think about taking risks with young people. Got to think about new and fresh and faithful ways of doing and being church that sees, do you believe that God could use you to touch Castlereagh? Could that be your Jerusalem? Could your Judea, the wider province, be Ulster? What if God wants to do something through this church? Do you have faith for that? Faith to begin to believe that the best is yet to be. That the glory of the latter house will be greater than the glory of the former. What if the Samaria for us or for you is the island of Ireland? All of it. New partnerships forged from Cork in the south to Londonderry in the north. Churches and partnerships and ideas and missions and discipleships spreading across this island and seeing it come alight with the gospel. Taking risks to release young men and women into ministry. Training and equipping and celebrating what God is doing. Do you have faith for that? And the uttermost ends of the earth. Could you see yourself as a church supporting mission partners all around the world? 
I don't say this to boast about the church that I lead at the moment. We have 42 mission partners in 26 countries around the world. We spend 27.5% of our budget on supporting global mission. We make choices that mean we can't do things locally because we want to see the kingdom extended in the lives of people that we'll never meet. Why? Because you can't outgive God. You can't reach further than God. There's a passage in the Old Testament that talks about digging ditches. You dig a ditch, God will fill it. If you dig a tiny ditch, he'll fill it. You dig a big ditch, he'll fill it. So what ditch are you willing to dig? Ulster still needs Jesus Christ. I believe that he could turn this province and this island around in a heartbeat. But in 10 years from now, you could look back and say, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. But for that to happen, we've got to be willing to do whatever it takes to put him first and to ask him to come and heal our land. Let's pray. God, in your mercy and in your grace, in your compassion and in your tenderness, I want to ask you to raise up in this room right now men and women that will go anywhere and do anything to see the gospel advanced. Whatever age, whatever generation they come from, whatever their background, I want you to raise them up, Lord, to put a holy fire in bellies in this room that will long to see Castlereagh, Ulster, Ireland, and the world transformed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Breathe your Holy Spirit into our hearts and lives. I think as you remain in prayer, that there are a couple of folk that I just want to pray for. I think that there are one or two people here who feel as if they've missed their chance to serve Jesus. You feel overlooked. And it's caused a great deal of hurt in your heart. You think the opportunity to serve God has passed you by. I think the Holy Spirit is saying tonight, that's a lie. The enemy's been lying to you. You haven't missed your chance. It's not too late. I think that's caused you to be hurt. And God wants to release that hurt from you tonight. He wants to just set you free from it. He wants to pull it out of your heart. Holy Spirit, will you speak that word into the people's hearts that need to hear it? Secondly, I think that there's someone here this evening. It's an old lady. And you have said to the Lord, I want to see a move of your spirit before I die. 
And I think God is saying to you tonight, you'll see it. Thirdly, I think that there are some of you here tonight and Dundonald isn't your home church. You're looking for one. You want to put your roots down somewhere and you're looking for a place where the Bible will be honored and the Spirit will be given room and you can be used. I think God is saying to you, Put your roots down. Fourthly, I think that there are some of you that think or have thought Dundonald is finished. I think the Holy Spirit wants to say to you gently but lovingly left to its own devices any church is finished but I haven't finished with Dundonald I'm not done there's more for me to do I think he's saying that with all of my heart The last thing I think he wants to say is a very specific thing. I think he's calling some of you into local church ministry tonight. He's saying, he's either reaffirming that call or he's making it. And for this one, I'd like you to keep your eyes closed, please. Feels like a good old missions evening. If you're saying to Jesus tonight, I want to give my life to the local church, to planting churches, to leading people into your kingdom, to pastoring, to preaching, to teaching, whatever that looks like, to evangelism, to worship leading. If you're either reaffirming it or saying it for the first time tonight, I want you to put your hand up now, please. Look at that. Look at that. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 people. Put your hands down. 16. What could God do with 16 people giving their life to serve His body? Holy Spirit, breathe on each one of us with the power of Jesus and let us blaze out the glory of God and I pray with all of my heart bring a revival in this land and bring an awakening that will call people out of their sin and make your people bold in the powerful name of Jesus Christ Amen